0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to Rasterized, a podcast about life and design with Sydney and Eric. This is our second episode in postures and creative block.
1: Yeah, so I know both of us probably deal with creative block at some point in time. Um, When's the last time you had issues with writer's block, creative block?
0: I think the last time I really encountered creative block was when I was trying to write copy for my website for whatever reason i just found it to be a really difficult thing for me to try and write about my experiences or write about myself repetitively or at least it felt repetitive so i'd have to say that but what about you eric
1: mine's definitely anytime i try to make content for my blog like i'll come up with some like idea that i want to write about start it and then i'm just like uh Does anyone really want to read this? Do I want to read this? Do I want to write about this? And then I instantly just, you know, fall into that despair of like not doing it. And then it never gets done, you know, end up procrastinating about something or just putting something out that I don't think is any good at all. So we have a couple of things to talk about with ways to deal with that. And one of them was something I read about in the New York Times again, which is the second week that I've referred to them, but they got some good stuff. So... Let me pull it up here. So this was an article by uh, Carl Richards. said, free yourself of your harshest critic and plow ahead. And I was kind of talking about how it's not your job to judge your own work. So whenever you create something, you know, it's just your job to make it and put it out there, to deliver it. And then it's everyone else's job to be able to say whether that's good or not. And because whenever you're trying to make something yourself your standards are usually always going to be a little bit higher than what you can actually do. At least that's with my experience. Anytime when I've taken photographs or made some design for a flyer or something, I always judge it a little bit more harshly than what I can probably actually do. So to kind of prevent yourself from ever getting into that funk where you don't complete anything because you don't think it's going to be good, just remember that it's like, it's not your position to like have to say, oh, is this good or not? You can let other people judge that and decide on that. And Because if you don't actually put something out, it can't be judged anyway. So from everyone else's perspective, it's just nothing.
0: Exactly. I also really like the graphic that goes along with this article as far as comparing your performance to your standards and the discrepancy between the two, how this is no longer your job if your performance doesn't meet your own personal standards. It reminded me when I was reading this article... Um, of the concept you know it's better to be done than perfect and not done at all so we're always going to find something that we believe we can improve upon or change but really it it does you no good if you can never get it done because you're so worried with the details or how things are coming along or how people will perceive it and i think that plays into another topic really tied into this is one of procrastination. Eric, would you say you're a perfectionist with your work?
1: Well, I try not to be. Mm-hmm. I, be- I guess that's the best I can say. <laughs> um, I know <laughs> what issues can come up by trying to be too much of a perfectionist, because there's that, you know, law of diminishing returns. You can put so much into it, but it's only going to get, you know, a little bit better with t- huge amounts of effort over time.
0: Mm-hmm. I found... That I run into this a lot where I have, much like what you said, really high standards for my own work, and I have these really pie in the sky big ideas and dreams, and then when I get to the brass tacks of it and realizing that what I want to do is something I can't achieve whether it's through my own skill set or the, my time frame of production and it really puts me <laughs> puts me in a, in a bad place when I'm trying to get work done and one of the best lessons I had learned through that is just um, it, working in a field that demanded quick return and quick output that I just had to give up some of what I thought I could do in, in that inner critic in order to get something done, or something, and and for the most part, it was pretty good. I mean, it's great to have high standards for yourself, and great to have high standards for your work, um, and and that's what really pushes you to do better things, to do bigger things. But knowing when to back off and say, "Okay, this is this is enough."
1: Yeah, and I I also get a, like a sense of satisfaction out of completing something to actually completing it and saying, okay, this is done and just either ship it off or move on to something else. Um, do you get the same kind of feeling of satisfaction whenever you finish a project?
0: I do. I, I do. Uh, I've been reading. <laughs> it doesn't, sound like it would apply, but I've been reading The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up by Marie Kondo. It's a New York Times bestseller, says we're plugging the New York Times anyway. But one of her biggest philosophies when it comes to cleaning uh, is that people do better when they can have a task that the they can accomplish in a short amount of time and see the end results. So I find, especially if I'm in a big project or something, that's like a daunting task. I try and break it up and have milestones I can achieve. And it, it really helps me uh, as opposed to sitting in a mess that I keep trying to rework or rehash and not going anywhere, just spinning my wheels, you know?
1: Absolutely. Um, and whenever you're working on stuff, um, do you ever feel like what you're making isn't relevant to your own creative work, like
0: like I'm I'm just a paid cog in the machine to carry out someone else's creative wishes, but not my own.
1: Yeah, kind of. <laughs> how much uh, How much of you do you feel like is you put in versus what's just you know filling out stuff for the client?
0: That's an interesting question. So, I've been building ads, and it's not something that I have formal training in, um, but I, I like to do it and I can do it. I find that my best work comes from when I can have some kind of creative input in while also respecting the client's wishes. For instance, I have a client who is pretty picky with her ads. She has a very specific um, color scheme she wants and design set um, aesthetics that she wants to implement. And so what I'll do if I find that what she wants is kind of clashing with my own internal sense of design or design principles, I'll offer her like two options like, okay, client, this is what you wanted. And you can see that this follows through. But I'm also presenting you with this other option, which I think would help highlight these things in your design and you know whatever it creates more balance or harmony. And, and usually when I do that, the client is in favor um, when I present that option. But uh, like I said, I, I like it when I can add my own twist to it. Or, what, or it, it's something like with writing, I feel like if something works, it resonates in me and I, I feel like it's good or I feel like it's solid. And, and as we've said before, design is so subjective. So. I guess I do better. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah. Like, I I like that you made a point of how you present it to the client really affects how they interpret it. Um, Whenever you can, like, kind of talk about how things work and everything and get them on board with your style of thinking, I think that definitely helps out a lot. Um, And I personally find that, you know, it's kind of part of my job to, like, interpret things into my own design like that's that's what people are coming to me for it's because they know i can do great work even though that they have these specific um outcomes that they want even even with picky clients that i mean if if they knew exactly what they wanted and how it was supposed to be done they would just do it themselves in most cases that's true so i i think it's a good point to put your your style into it uh because that's i think that's what people want and why people uh, refer to you and uh kind of to jump into something along with this uh when people come to you do they come to you like say uh, saying you're a designer is there is there any purpose in saying oh i'm a designer or i'm a you know graphic designer or a photographer or a writer
0: that's a good question um I, <laughs> it's hard for me to say because usually it, it'll be like the um sales manager or the account executive who will be a liaison. I'm not sure what they refer to me as. Um, I, I guess when I refer to myself, since I don't have formal training, it's hard to say, like, I'm an artist. <laughs> Where I don't have a problem saying I'm a writer. I, I truly feel that I am. So I'll say that I work in production. Like, I'll keep it in more vague terms as opposed to labeling it just so... I don't know. I I feel like, do you ever feel like certain words, like whether it's like graphic artist or designer, do you feel like it ever gets like a bad reputation or it it ever has something like a negative connotation, like highfalutin or maybe I'm just reading into it too much?
1: I'm not sure if it's that the connotation of it. It's just how I think people add a lot more to the definition than is really necessary. Um, so I see it a lot in photography. I always see discussions talking about who is a real photographer. What does it mean to be a real photographer? And kind of with that no true Scottman's fallacy, oh, you're not a real photographer if you use a cell phone or something like that gets said. Um, when really like if you're talking about a graphic designer or a photographer or a writer. It's really simple what the definition is. A photographer is a person who makes photos. A graphic designer is a person who designs graphics. Um, and we add all these connotations to those words that I don't think is really helpful to our own personal development. Like like there's some untold standards that we have to live up to to be able to earn those titles. Um, I'm not, I'm not sure it's useful or helpful to have these weird blurred lines. I think there's definitely something to, um, like have pride in having those titles, but I think it needs to be tempered with the fact that, okay, this is, these names are just a part of language to help describe what things or people are and that I, I feel like that should be all they are
0: I agree with what you're saying I think I lose interest in describing myself as such whether it's a designer or a writer because of a it seems like in current times there's this tendency to associate a lifestyle or personality with these terms. So it's not just I write things, but it's, oh, I, you know, whatever, I have strange sleeping habits. Like there's a lot of um, other images and associations that seem to be conflated with these titles, which is why I'm hesitant to describe myself as such. And I keep it in more vague terms. But I totally agree with you at the heart of it. If if you're designing graphics, or you're photographing, or you're writing, you know, that that's what it is, you without all of this unnecessary baggage.
1: Yeah, like there's this assumption that if you're a writer, you must be in Starbucks with a typewriter somewhere or something. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh my God. Uh, have you ever seen the picture of the guy in the Starbucks who brings in his typewriter?
1: I have not seen that.
0: Oh man. Yeah, it's very much real <laughs> and sad. <laughs> if that's your thing, go for it. But I don't, it seems like a lot of vlogging around.
1: Yeah, and it, it's exactly the thing that why does that image have to be put on you know it's just you know stereotypes at the the base of it (laughs) and that's not really helpful for anyone who's trying to either break into that field or to like because because you know if you're trying to like become a writer or something you're suddenly judging yourself off of that stereotype when in reality that's not what you're doing most of the time
0: you mean what it's not what you're doing most of the time meaning fulfilling that stereotype
1: yeah, yeah. That, that being the the typewriter guy in, in Starbucks, for the reality of most writers, is not what they're actually doing.
0: <laughs> no, most of the times it's like, for me, I'm correcting things for the senior center has submitted their schedule of events for the week or whatever. It's usually going over uh, things like that or helping people clarify their own message I wish I could spend that much time in a Starbucks.
1: It, it is. It's, it's what we probably uh, idealize or romanticize the idea of doing that stuff. You know, the, yeah, and that's what things like personal projects are for. It's to kind of live that lifestyle that we think of in our head, that we dream of the job being.
0: <laughs> right. Right. If we're not finding that kind of fulfillment in work, that's why we have these outside projects to, you know, have the more enjoyable parts them come true. I guess that's probably why I refer to myself as a paginator a lot, since most people aren't super familiar with it, and I think because of that it hasn't become romanticized. I mean, where would you expect someone who designs pages to hang out? I mean, that image hasn't been established, so I think that's why I rely on that one a lot, and it's kind of, for me, a blanket term for a lot of the work that I do anyway because I do design pages, whether it's the ad or the layout of the writing, which oftentimes I have uh, played a part in, whether it's editing or writing. But um, do you find that to be true with Projectionist?
1: Well, I, I feel like I'm in a slightly unique situation, whereas my job title only talks about maybe 10% of what I do during a day. <laughs> so I, I my daytime job is running a large format, independent theater and so i'm the projectionist at it i run all the movies but then i also run the popcorn machine i sell tickets i run the website i run all the social media i design flyers and then i also do um audio and visual technical support for all the classrooms and all the other organizations in the building so as you can imagine going and hitting play on the projector only takes a couple minutes out of my day, <laughs> whereas everything else uh, takes more than the majority of it.
0: <laughs> so when you were first applying for the job, or even when you were first hired on, did you know it was going to be all of these other facets, like um, like this, uh, the technology for these classrooms? And it, was that made clear, or did that just become part of your position after people got to know you and knew all the things you could do Uh,
1: it was certainly mentioned they they said when they were looking for someone that um they didn't really know what they wanted for the position um this was a like a trial that they were gonna do they wanted someone that could help out with the theater but then could also be like a generalist with all the other tech stuff that they needed and didn't have anyone for um our entire group like the entire theater is ran by three people there's me doing all the tech stuff. There's one other that also does theater work and is the uh, director of the theater. And then we have one who does group sales. And then that's it. That's all we have um, running the whole place. Um, so there's we, we have to fill a lot of hats throughout the day.
0: I completely understand as a fellow young professional creative working with a very small team, you end up having to wear so many hats, whether it's making popcorn or working on the ad campaigns for your organization although i wish i could make popcorn at work that's that's (laughs) far more fun than some of my less glamorous jobs
1: it's it's certainly not something that i'm upset with doing or it's kind of fun because i get to like you know play the i get to run a little concession stand and you know make the popcorn and sell candy and everything that's all fun Um, on top of just, you know, sitting at the desk and working on flyers or web design and everything, um, it's certainly enjoyable to do. And I, if, if you have the opportunity to get a job where you can do a lot of different skills, I'd say go for it because, um, I mean, even if I decided I didn't want to do design anymore, I could go manage at any number of stores since I do it day to day.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, With jobs that require you to do more, more than just what you're signing up for or wearing more than just one hat. Like Eric said, it's really an opportunity to perfect all these other skills. And since we are in jobs that we're working with design, but Management too, and, and how to work with people, and how to interact with the public, and how to be public speakers—all of those are wonderful assets to take with you to whatever position you choose to pursue. Following, so.
1: And I have a question for you, Sydney. Okay. Are you work- Are you working on any personal projects outside of work now? Um,
0: it—it's not really a personal project that has anything like I, i'm working on something it's not exactly fun uh, so i'm going to be going on vacation soon and i haven't had any time off since i started this job and my co-workers are kind of worried so i'm trying to set up my Dropbox, such that my coworkers are able to send me files to work on, especially like we were just talking about, having such a tiny staff. There's no way I can take time off and have someone else fill in for me, which is simultaneously. Gratifying like a huge ego boost while also frustrating because I'd like some time off Um, But it's fine. So that's what my project is just making sure everything is set up with my Dropbox and my files So that way people can send me artwork or they can send me existing Templates whatever the case may be so I can work on those things from the beach. So that's my personal project not not like fun, but I I don't know. How do you have a organization system for your Dropbox account?
1: Um, mostly just folders. <laughs> uh, I, Fold- I do use Dropbox. Folders upon folders. Yeah, I, I use Dropbox to distribute a lot of my uh, work to people, to the clients. Um, so I have. It kind of set up by year and then by specific type of project. Like I have a folder for my InDesign projects, which are like usually flyers and stuff and the resources for that. Um, A section for logos that are used for websites and a section that is uh, all of the photos that I take. So it's usually kind of by like, date and type that's kind of how i mostly set it up does your team use any uh type of team communication like uh slack or like a even a discord or something
0: no since we are in one small but totally open office um communication is just the good old-fashioned way walking over the person's desk which is fine Uh, I have a feeling when I'm gone it'll be a lot of email and if someone's on the road it'll be like a text message but other than that it's it's pretty person-to-person and we also rely on how in our servers how things are set up to get the point across like if I upload an ad to the proofs folder obviously that means it's going to be proofed. So things like that, I'd say it's pretty, pretty simple, but it gets the job done for all of the different things we need to do. Does your work use Slack or another kind of program to facilitate communication?
1: I have brought the idea up to my work. However, it's, I work largely with the state and they're not very keen on uh, um, adopting new software. Um, so most of it's all through email, as as clunky as it can be sometimes. It, as you said, it does get the job done. And I do think that there is uh, value to be had in being in an office setting where you can just kind of turn around and shout at someone about something. Because, <laughs> you know, there's all that um, interaction you can have where it's like, I don't know how to make this headline sound right. What do you think, Johnny? Uh, And you can't get that over some of the uh, digital virtual uh, communications as much.
0: No, no. There's definitely a lot of benefits that come with working in a small office where we could have the the heads of three different departments bump into each other in our kitchenette and and discuss ideas. So it, it works out well. Um, it, as far as your office setup, do you have your own area or are you like in an open office space?
1: I'm in like a front desk area inside a uh, large environmental center. So as you walk into the center, there's an information desk there. I'm in like the corner of it, so I'm kind of like exposed where I am, which is, you know, okay. It needs to be that way because I need to interact with people. Um, Either if someone happens to be gone and someone's up at the desk and needs help, or if they want to buy tickets or something. Um, But it definitely is a very distracted environment for trying to do uh, creative work in. Um and it's probably actually one of my biggest challenges uh w- while trying to do s- any of my creative work is uh keeping concentrated on it while thousands of people are walking around and talking.
0: <laughs> this is very true, and especially if they bring in wildlife. I, I kind of remember you showing me some of the exhibits at least them bringing in different critters. So there's there's a lot that could be going on in your office space at any given day.
1: Oh yes, I have I have released monarch butterflies. I have taken care of uh baby opossums for a couple of hours <laughs> as I babysat them since uh, someone came to come get them. I've had people call me asking about what to do with baby bunnies and birds and all sorts of things. Wow. It's definitely an exciting place to work in. <laughs>
0: you probably weren't expecting that either when you were first signing up.
1: Oh, no. I, I There's something new every day. But, but it's fun that way.
0: <laughs> mm-hmm. Do you find then you work more on your creative projects. Well, let me ask it to you this way. Do you find that you take your work home?
1: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I I find that working at the environmental center definitely influences my personal work. I started a whole blog section actually that's just me walking on the park and doing nature walks and whatever i see and want to take a photo of I, I just snap it and put it up there and working in a center where i have access to environmental environmental educators um i'm able to like take pictures of things and then go find out what they actually are so there's a lot of um, tangential learning that i get from uh being in the facility um on top of that um since, you know, going back to talking about working on small teams, often there's something that happens at work that I'm the only person who knows how to do it. So I end up getting a text or an email, you know, halfway through my weekend saying, oh, hey, we need something like this, you know, within the next 10 minutes. Can you like send us an email on it? Um, sometimes that can be frustrating, but, uh, you know, it comes with the balance of having all that responsibility too. Uh, I I do think it's very important that if you find yourself in that situation, definitely write down every time you do something, keep like a a spreadsheet or a list of something on Google Docs that you can just put in like, hey, this day I did this, this day I did that project, this day someone asked me about this. Um, Just so when your employee reviews or your contract renewal date comes up, you can say like, Hey, I'm doing all this extra work and everything. Could you compensate me a little more for it?
0: <laughs> right, right and even um, as a part of like why you should be keeping track of the different things you do in addition, for compensation purposes is when you are applying for your next position and you're trying to figure out your resume or cover letter, you can refer back to those logs of things that you did and especially things that you did uh, repeatedly or things that really made an impact. You'll remember it like, oh, that's right. I did do this or I I did help coordinate or whatever the case may be. So it's good to keep a log of things you've done. And yeah, like Eric said, with performance review, you can say that this is X, Y, and Z that I've done and worked on it for this period of time and these are the outcomes and, and there you go. <laughs> yeah,
1: it's it's definitely a good idea to keep track of everything. Uh it makes negotiation much easier.
0: Yes, yes. If you're if you're in a position to negotiate, I say this as I say this as someone who works in a family business, so I can't exactly negotiate, but for those of you who can, awesome. Definitely go for it.
1: Oh yeah. Yeah, it it becomes a bit more complicated when it's, like, you're negotiating with your dad or something.
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So, (laughs) I mean, I I can negotiate other things, like, hey, I'd like to come in an hour later today.
1: But as far as long-term things,
0: small small perks, I'll take it when (laughs) I can get it.
1: Do we want to talk about our typeface of the week?
0: Sure, let's talk about our typeface of the week. Drumroll! We, we, we
1: properly <laughs> called it typeface this time, so no one can get mad at us.
0: <laughs> That's right. Have we gotten any flack or any kind of responses about our typeface or, or lack thereof last week?
1: Well, I've been I've been holding on to the episode a bit, so I haven't been letting too many people hear our, our hear our mistakes. So, but I'm sure we'll hear about it later. <laughs>
0: Are we talking about both of
1: them? I think I'm going to talk about both of them today. So we're doing uh, two typefaces this week because they go together. We have a reason for it. And the two typefaces are Source Sans Pro and Merryweather. You've probably used Merryweather sometime. I'm probably Source Sans Pro too. I think it's like a um, one of the default fonts on Android or something possibly. Um, but these two typefaces are used by the U.S. Web Design Standards at standards.usa.gov. Um, they talk all about it and how to use it together, and they have different um, uh, pairings that they suggest to use. Uh, it's They're both pretty functional fonts. Um, maybe not the fanciest. I do like Meriwether. Meriwether, I think, makes great body text. And Source Sans Pro, I think, works best in headlines, but they do look very governmenty which i guess is the point
0: (laughs) interesting i guess i hadn't considered that uh, they could potentially look governmenty i just used Meriwether for a huge project um it's a huge seasonal publication we do every year and most of our body copy was done with Meriwether, and what drew me to it aside from the fact that it is a serif font and as we established from our last podcast It is a good thing to do when you have a lot of body copy to have those leading lines. Um, I don't know. I I think I might have gotten it off of Canva originally. I I might have been playing around in there, and that's what introduced me to Meriwether. I I like it that it is, I think, a fresh reinterpretation of a classic serif font. There's something about it to me that kind of invokes a sense of nature maybe it's the weather part of its name <laughs> that it's like tried and true i don't know i could be reading into this too much but that's what it makes me think of and as i'm reading through um the description you know from the website the standards um website while conveying a desirable mix of classic yet modern simplicity it communicates warmth and credibility at both large and small font sizes and yeah i think that's what really draws people to it time and time again so
1: Yeah, Yeah. and and it's good to note that both of these are open source fonts, so you can download them and use them for anything. Sometimes font uh, licenses can get really expensive. Uh, These two, you can go ahead and use them on whatever projects you want, and they do look good, and they are very easy to read. So if you're doing anything that uh, is being sent out to a lot of people and needs to be legible in a lot of people, particularly with um, Source Sans Pro, uh, it has a lot of language that can be, or languages that can be used with it, um, Western European language, Vietnamese, Pinyin, Ro, uh, Romanization of Chinese, and even Navajo. And that comes from the, uh, standardsusa.gov website. Uh, definitely a nice couple of fonts. Um, oh, typefaces. I'm sorry. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so so we're making the official switch to typeface of the week. We,
1: we, will, we, will, we can call them typefaces. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I'm glad you brought up the Source Sans Pro because I have been looking for a replacement for Futura, which for our creative department has been our main go-to sans-serif font, and I personally am not a fan, probably because it's just overdone, so I'm going to be using Source Sans Pro in all of my upcoming projects that I think would benefit with a nice, clean sans-serif typeface. So thanks, Eric. Thanks for that recommendation.
1: No problem. Are these
0: recommendations, or are we just letting people know these are out there?
1: Well, I think it would be kind of neat if, like... If listeners tried to make something out of w- using these typefaces, and then they could send us in what they make, and maybe we can feature them in the show notes and stuff. So yeah, go ahead and try to make something with Source Sans Pro and Merryweather and see what you come up with.
0: I like it. I like it a lot. Please do so.
1: Did we we covered basically everything in the show notes, didn't we? Um, we didn't go really in depth into imposter syndrome. Um, do you
0: want to, co- take a couple minutes now to talk about it? And like mash it in somewhere.
1: Well, it was very. It's up to you. It was very fresh in my mind at one point. Um, I definitely, I don't know. I experience it myself. That's for sure. Because sometimes I'm like, whenever everyone figures out that I that I don't really know what I'm doing. But the but the honest truth is, like, n- no one knows what they're really doing. <laughs> We're all just trying to figure it out.
0: <laughs> Becoming an adult to me has been realizing that once you know how to google the information you need you are okay like that is the main objective whether it's cooking life skills work skills anything if you can google it you can fool anyone and really we're all just trying to fool each other that we've got it all under control which is good because if we knew how many people did not have it under control oh man that would be a scary scene
1: oh yeah well that brings up a good uh uh, point that I had been reading about um, the creative world's bullshit industrial complex. <laughs> I, I found this to be a really interesting article and something that helped me really reflect on what we're trying to do. And it was talking about how the creative world has this whole section of the industry that's just trying to teach people. They're like the experts for hire or something to like get you into it. Um, and I actually know... I had a personal experience with this. Um so over the summer I had started like looking into some online resources for stuff and I came across a certain website that I I don't want to drop names but they deal with things like oh feeding you lots of information and teaching you skills. Um if you got it from that, I'm not going to say anything. But um
0: <laughs> I think I know what you're talking <laughs> about. But continue.
1: Well, they Sent me out an email saying that, whoa we want you, you people, and everyone to, to teach on our platform, and all you have to do is um, submit the pitch for your show, and we'll pick 250 people for it." And so I submitted a, something that I thought might be cool as a way to teach, and they picked me out for it, and I was like, "Oh, okay." Like, I don't have any way to back up what I said that I can do, but all right, we'll start doing it. And so I get into this class of like 250 people and they're teaching us all how to like make the classes for the website. And I got into it and realized like, none of these people know what the heck they're talking about. Like, if like they're not actively doing a lot of this stuff. I don't actively use the thing I was going to teach all the time. It was just one half, one little skill I happened to know. And that's when I connected it to this article and realized, oh, that's what they're talking about. It's all these, uh, you know, attempts at being experts while not having the information to back it up. And I know I personally reflected on everything that I was trying to write on my blog and everything and, you know, what we try to do with this podcast, too. And that's, you know, is, is do I have the clout to talk about what I'm talking about? And where is the line with that? And I think some of that comes from, you know, if you're pulling things from your personal experience and stuff, that's one thing, but it's another to be able to say, Oh, I can get you into this field or something by doing these steps. And this is the only way it'll work. Uh, did did you, have you had any experiences with that where you're like, uh, looking at a resource for how to uh, do something and it felt like the tutorial or the person talking about it just didn't know what they were doing?
0: I would say so. I definitely remember um, someone who I had worked with on a project before who who did a lot of that, like, oh, I, I can teach you how to do this, and I would, like, ask questions, and they couldn't really explain why, uh, and it seemed like it was, you know, subpar ways of getting to our desired end product, whether it was just, like, improperly archiving our information. It, it just, yeah, along those lines that I felt like this person was just kind of under the impression that if they act confident enough and they act like they knew what they were doing that I would just go with it.
1: The the fake it till you make it uh, approach.
0: Yeah. Which is fine until it you know blows up in your face and then you kind of have an understanding that this person is making it up. But, but I mean that, that doesn't help with our imposter syndrome anyway.
1: Oh yeah. It's, it's, it's this weird balance because on one hand you want to be real with the accomplishments that you have made. Like, if you can look at your stuff objectively and say, yes, I did that, that's useful to help propel you forward. But, and it also comes from school too. We're taught all the time to be able to upsell ourselves and talk about what we've done to be able to, you know, get a job and everything. So there has to be a lot of self-awareness to realize how far you're going with that, whether you're propelling yourself forward or just creating this false deity of you that can do anything
0: there was oh gosh i'll have to pull it up for you i saw a cartoon earlier today and it was um was it a cartoon or a meme i can't remember but it's something along the lines of a fireman is trying to grasp a hose like a high-powered hose that's out of control and it says when you get the job on a skill you lied about having (laughs)
1: Oh yeah. Just good grief. It's it's exactly that. And whenever you get dropped into a situation, and sometimes that's a great way to learn. So, you know, if you get dropped into something and you have to figure it out, cause you're, you know, your the food on your table depends on it. That could be a great motivator to get to learn how to do something. But there's some situations where that's just not okay. And you know, I, it's, it's tough to be aware of, you know, where that line is.
0: Absolutely. But yeah, it's being honest with yourself, um, that having people in your corner, at least professionally, who you trust and can tell you, you know, give you honest feedback. Um, if anything, I've learned it's constructive feedback really is the best way to grow. You can't sugarcoat things. You can't, you know, ha- sneak around it. You just have to look at what you're doing and what you can improve upon and just tackle it.
1: I, I absolutely agree, and I think with that, you know, that kind of boils back to like you need to do work and actually put it out there so that people can judge it and let you know if you're on the right track or not.
0: Right. Uh, I, with that in mind, it reminded me, I read a really interesting article a couple weeks ago about why people pr- procrastinate, especially like why do perfectionists procrastinate? And part of it was along the lines of a self sabotaging behavior where you have an out if your project or whatever you're working on does not turn out how you wanted it to go because you are working under a crunch deadline and you therefore you have have an excuse like oh well it didn't meet your expectations because I had to do it in such a short time frame and we were so busy and all these other things so I thought that was a really interesting idea and I find myself encountering it since reading that article and I try to you know tackle things and 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 do my best and get feedback along the way so I'm not putting myself in a position where I'm working under a crunch or one of my worst fears when it comes to working on projects will be working for a client and we'll be back and forth with the client back and forth and then it'll be like the night we have to post the project to print and i don't have the final say from the client because their office is closed or whatever they haven't gotten back to me and that feeling that they haven't said yes it it it, uh, it, it doesn't sit well with me and i tried since then i've tried to not put myself in any kind of position that it's you know the 11th hour and I, I, I try to not rely on that as an excuse, like, oh, well, you didn't like it; it was because it was rushed and you didn't get back to me. So I try to keep that in mind with my imposter syndrome. Like my my work is good because I put time and care into it, and I know I have these skills and I can do them well, and go from there. It, I don't know. A lot of it is just self sabotage, thinking that you're not qualified or you're you you are a fraud, and people are just going to find
1: out. Absolutely, I, I completely agree with that like procrastinating is always going to bite you in the butt uh, and it doesn't help you with developing your own skills at all. And uh, we'll probably use that to wrap it up for the week. I think that was, I think that's pretty good. So I, uh, we will see you next week. Uh, We'll be doing a podcast every week, probably on Thursdays. So thank you for listening.
0: See you then friends.
1: I was at Wegmans the other day. And I wanted to get potato chips. Did I tell you about this? That I I didn't get potato chips? No. So I'm at Wegmans and I want just, you know, salt and pepper potato chips. Those are my favorite kind. So I go and see something that says salt and pepper. I'm like, oh, it's in a potato chip aisle. I'm going to go grab it and take it home. Get home. Finally read the bag and realize it's potato snack. And I'm like, (laughs) What? what the heck is a potato snack? And turns out there's some, like, weird potato flour mushed together puff things with salt and pepper on them. They were the worst tasting potato-based snack I've ever had. Oh, no. I was so disappointed.
0: Oh, I'm sorry. That sounds awful.
1: Well, it's like, why is this easier than just making a potato chip? (laughs) You're just frying potatoes. Right. Instead, you've got to make it into a flour and then press it together <laughs> and then make it cook it into some weird mushy puff thing. I was like, that seems like it's more involved. Yeah,
0: it makes no sense. I'm sorry. That's a disappointment, especially with a trip to Wegmans.
1: I know. That's okay. I got other good stuff from Wegmans.